From the Missouri School of Journalism, welcome to Global Journalist. This week's show is hosted by three assistant producers, sitting in for our regular host, Jason McClure. I'm Kyle McCubbin. Hi, it's Mina Tian. Hi, I'm Renee Whistle. On this week's show, we will hear from two women who helped create journalism startups thousands of miles apart, one in the Philippines and the other in India. But this isn't a business story. This is a story of how, despite the geographic and political differences between those two countries, both women have faced strikingly similar attempts from their government to control the truth. As legacy news outlets were forced to appease those oppressive governments, a gap was left for news startup outlets to fill. But it wasn't long before those startups began to face the same oppression and attempts at censorship. Maria Ressa has dealt with this firsthand. Ressa founded Rappler, a social news network, to serve as an alternative to the legacy press in 2012. The former CNN journalist's goal with Rappler was to use journalism to fuel change and protect democracy in Southeast Asia. She's been arrested multiple times for her critical reporting of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte, who won the 2016 election with help from the parent company of Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica, as you may remember, became infamous for the way it mined Facebook data for President Donald Trump's campaign. She was subpoenaed by the Philippine government in 2017, and in January 2018, the government tried to shut Rappler down. For her resistance, Ressa was named to Time Magazine's Person of the Year list. She says her country was the testbed for the use of social media to manipulate public opinion, and that the media manipulation that has affected her and her startup could affect millions more. We're the canary in the coal mine. What's happened to us is happening and will happen to you. Global Journalist had the opportunity to interview Ressa in New Orleans, where she spoke at the News Leaders Association. Ressa said she didn't start out trying to create political controversy. Instead, she wanted to use the tools of social media to build community. Rappler has the standards and ethics of traditional journalism. It is built for putting television in your pocket for mobile, and then with technology that builds communities of action. Right? What was important for me as a journalist was making sure we knew the whys. The elevator pitch when I was doing this was, you know, Rappler builds communities of action and journalism is what we feed these communities. And the first big community we built is on climate. It's the Philippines is the third most disaster prone country in the world. So we have an average of 20 typhoons every year. So we built this platform and it made it very transparent when people call for help, when people send information. We, we began a hashtag system working with government and other news groups in the Philippines. We were the only ones to do this. And we rolled the platform out in 2013, one month before Typhoon Haiyan hit. And then it was adopted by the government in 2014. 2015, it became part of the Office of Civil Defense. So they would they would act based on it. If you need help during a typhoon, all you have to do is on any social media platform, tap, type hashtag rescue PH and someone will come. Rosa said she first saw social media as the tool for good. Absolutely. You know, I first understood social networks um, and social networks are just your family and friends. When I was tracking terrorists, because you find them that way, family and friends. But social media are your family and friends on steroids. And so I, my second book was about 
how the terrorist recruitment had moved online, that this virulent ideology was spreading faster online. This predated ISIS by like a year, right? So what I wanted to do is if the evil people can do that, why can't we do, why can't the good guys do this? And the end goal was to help build institutions bottom up, build communities of action. Why wait for government? I mean, I've been doing stories for a very long time and the fundamental problems are still there. Endemic corruption, weak law and order. How, what if we build it community to community? What if we create bureaus, not the old way top down from west, from the West, but we build them bottom up and then we, we pull them all together. That's another way of doing it. That's why I was so excited by social media. Russell was excited by some of the advances in social media, but those advances came with a hidden risk. I think they got greedier, you know, and um, to me, it was in 2015 when Facebook introduced instant articles. Remember, Twitter is a linear feed. That's where most news people are. And it worked. Twitter worked. But the adoption rates of Twitter was far lower than Facebook. Facebook wanted to get the news. And so they did. They rolled out instant articles in 2015 in the United States. In the Philippines, we were one of four that they invited to do it. I put everything in because I wanted to do a baseline. That was the end of 2015. By February 2016, I took everything out. But here's the, the bad part. They put news in the same environment using the same algorithms as you would telling a joke or talking about what, you're, what you had for breakfast. So it left them vulnerable for information operations. That's when all hell started breaking loose. And by 2016, you saw it globally. In the Philippines, though, Russell said the social media issues began with the election of President Rodrigo Duterte that same year and the government's launch of a drug war that has left thousands of people dead. So we've began, President Duterte was elected in May of 2016. He began his drug war the end of June, the beginning of July 2016. And not coincidentally, the campaign pages of Duterte and uh, his vice president can candidate, the vice presidential candidate, Bongbong Marcos, they began to work together and we began to see the weaponization of social media. The first targets were really any person on Facebook who questioned the killings in the drug war. So the idea there was to just pound that person to silence and it worked. Second targets were journalists. So by July, uh, so this is how many months after it's Duterte's? One month. Wow. It's his first month in office, right? And in July, we started realizing that many of our members on Facebook, many of the people who followed us were starting to become quiet because they were getting pounded and we were getting deluged by pro-Duterte um, voices that were attacking anyone else. This pro-government shows were doing more than just silencing online dissent. They weren't just attacking Rappler, they were attacking anyone who questioned the drug wars. So the first goal was to just silence other narratives. The second goal was to make their narrative, um, I say astroturfed, but to make it be the predominant one so it would create a bandwagon effect. Popularity of President Duterte. 
it's at 83%. That doesn't happen without the astroturfing that's happened on social media, right? The attacks against journalists. This also was made viral on Facebook. And this phenomenon extends far beyond the Philippines. Rosa said it matters to people around the world, including the U.S. That's because the same tactics have been rolled out elsewhere. What we've we've seen this, and um, the last we've seen this in the data, but Christopher Wiley, the researcher for Cambridge Analytica, verified that that the Philippines was the petri dish where they experimented, and the Philippines makes sense because we're. A former colony of the United States. I think the only one. We speak English. A hundred million people. A hundred percent of the Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. So it's like when you're experimenting with genetics on fruit flies because the generations are faster. That's the Philippines. If it works in the Philippines, it's tried here, and I see it in the stories now that are being done.、Um, New York Times did this story on how. Trump's allies are doing research on journalists and looking for dirt on journalists. This happened to us. I think the difference in the United States is that your institutions are stronger. But if you do not protect your rights, while your rights are still strong, you will watch them erode in plain sight, and you will lose. You will lose democracy as we know it today. In the Philippines, these types of attacks weren't just limited to the virtual world. They turned into the government efforts to silence the news site through the courts. So it's a three-pronged attack. First is online, exponentially break it down, break you down, stifle your voice,、um, which then allows them to build the narrative around you. So that the second is it jumps from the online to. Traditional media that is favorable, that that's something that acts often as a proxy for government. And finally, it comes top down. The attacks come top down. The attack of being owned by foreigners. It's not true,、um, but we were we began getting those attacks in January, almost as soon as President Duterte was elected. And then after that, within a year, a year and a half,、um, President Duterte. Said the exact same thing in his State of the Nation address. This is when he's addressing the nation,、uh, and he said, "You know, Rappler, American-owned. <laughs> What can you do as a journalist, Mr. President? You're wrong." I tweeted immediately. Apparently, that got him angry. Then, after that, a week later, the legal cases began. My first subpoena. After the subpoena, that was July of 2016, August 2016. By January 2017. Sorry, July twenty seventeen. So July twenty seventeen was when the president attacked us in a State of the Nation address. August twenty seventeen, the first subpoena. So it was the end of July, January twenty eighteen, the first case, and then that was when they tried to shut Rappler down. And then from that time, we got almost a case a month, eleven cases. You can find Maria Ressos reporting on her website Rappler dot com. As a reminder, you're tuned into Global Journalist. Today, we're learning from two women who helped launch independent news sites in Asia, only to face a series of challenges from the government. Now, we'll take a look into India, a country that, like the Philippines, is now headed by a strongman. Supriya Sharma is the executive editor of Scroll.in, an online publication reporting on the politics and culture of contemporary India. 
Scroll started in the same year that Hindu nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi was elected. Sharma says she set out to tell the stories that define modern India. Our mission has been to report on the political and cultural stories shaping contemporary India. And as it happens, uh, Scroll came into existence in 2014, which is the year of the big election in India, the election in which Bharatiya Janata Party won a huge majority under the leadership of Narendra Modi. Sharma says Modi's election brought a divisive ideology and discrimination against religious minorities. Just to give you some background, BJP is a Hindu nationalist party. It's the political arm of an organization called Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, or RSS, which believes that the foundational principle of the Indian nation is Hindu religion. It considers religious minorities, particularly Muslims, as second-class citizens. Uh, Modi, through his formative years, was a campaigner for the RSS. He spent decades advocating this very divisive political ideology. And when he became the chief minister of the state of Gujarat in Western India, he, uh, under his watch, some of the worst rioting took place in which more than a thousand Muslims were killed. So he came with this uh, record of being a divisive leader. And yet he went on to win the election in 2014 because he promised young Indians that he'd bring better days for them, that there'll be economic prosperity. So this is, this is how he was swept to power in 2014. He wasn't, he, he did something very clever through the election campaign. What he did was he foregrounded his reputation as a good administrator, as someone who had developed the state of Gujarat, who had done wonders for its economy. Again, largely a myth which had gone unquestioned in the media, a lapse on the part of the Indian media to not expose those false claims in the election campaign. And he kept the social agenda that that is sort of deeply rooted in the philosophy of his political party, of their foundational, their parent organization. He kept that somewhat in the background, resorting occasionally to dog whistles. But when he came to power, clearly the message went out to his social base, and very soon we started seeing a rise in hate speech against religious minorities. And not just hate speech, by the way, like blatant hate attacks on the ground, physical attacks on Muslims in particular, in the name of the cow. The cow, of course, is sacred to India's Hindu majority, but beef is eaten by some of India's religious minorities. So the possession of beef by Muslims became a flashpoint for religious violence. One of the first attacks, you saw people go into the house of a Muslim family and drag out a man, all because they said that the family had stored beef in its fridge. The first thing that the police did when it arrived on the crime scene was actually to con confiscate the meat and send it to a lab for testing. But these attacks targeted other religious minorities as well. Not just Muslims, but also on uh, church gatherings, on, on Christians in certain parts of the country. You'd imagine in a country that prides itself as the world's largest democracy with a tradition for secularism, which is enshrined in our constitution. Um, you'd imagine that in a country like that, which also has or at least thought it had a vibrant and free press, these attacks would be rigorously covered, the government would be questioned, it would be put on the mat, those vigilantes, uh, you know, we'd follow up the cases carefully to make sure that they're brought to justice. Unfortunately, none of that has happened. As a reporter, Sharma said she's also experienced personal attacks. I think 
you know for me personally as a journalist in in the 18 years uh, in journalism one of the things that i did was i reported from a state called chatisgarh in central india it's a state that's witnessing a long running low intensity war between maoist rebels and the indian government uh, a part of the state is a media dark zone where basically the local media in that state had been silenced for a variety of reasons partly because they were very dependent on government advertising and so when the conflict intensified they had to pick sides which meant that they became essentially the mouthpiece of the government and so it was reporters like me who were coming from outside who were reporting you know uh, for the national media one step removed from the 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 dynamics of that state we were able to go in and truthfully accurately cover the conflict so you know when you go in and and report a story that the authorities are trying to block when you know you take on um, both you know physical risks challenges uh, you have to walk for miles to get to a village which has been burned down by security forces and you know that getting the story out is going to make a difference and which it did the supreme court went on to pull up the government in instances like this the human rights violation they were held accountable for them in other places and underlying the armed conflict was a resource conflict where mining corporations were basically going in and profiting at the expense of local communities and we were able to report on illegal mining and, and permits were cancelled in areas so you know i've had a, the chance as a reporter to see impact to see the power of journalism and i hold on to that that right now things look really bleak but in chatisgarh change didn't come overnight you know we were at it we had to spend a lot of time doing the work that eventually brought a difference to the lives of people i recognize that that was also because at that time indian democracy seemed to you know all the checks and balances were working however sharma thinks india's press is not covering this activity as aggressively as it should well um i guess the the mandate that modi won in 2014 was taken by many media organizations as basically as a signal to to sort of grow silent around the activities of the supporters of the BJP however she said there are some media organizations that tried to stand up to the attacks only to face retaliation to go back to to the phenomenon that we're talking about which is this rise in hate speech and hate attacks So one prominent newspaper in India it's the second most read English daily in the country they started a project called Hate Tracker where basically they decided they're going to track every single attack and within like months the editor was asked to leave because the media owner well we suspect got a direct message from the government now this is not something anyone's going to go on record to state but it's widely believed that the organization was basically seeking an audience with the prime minister they wanted to invite him to an event that they were organizing and you know to get modi's attendance uh, at the event they were willing to lose their editor she says the government pressure on the media comes in several different forms there is self censorship there is uh, subtle intimidation there are pressures of various kinds um it's been very disturbing as a journalist to see that you know the largest tv networks in the country are not only caving in to the government and not questioning it they are actually also fueling the hate on some of the largest tv networks the prime time debates that take place at night 
are essentially again uh, giving voice to this very divisive vicious ideology they are inviting into their studios people who basically who are openly peddling hate speech against religious minorities Sharma's organization scroll.in has tried to take a different approach she's particularly proud of its aggressive coverage of India's sudden effort in 2016 to introduce a new currency We were one of the few organizations that went out on the first day itself to document the hardship that this was causing to people. We consistently we tried to cover it from every angle. We, we spoke to people from all social classes. Our reporters were outside the banks the next morning. In fact, within an hour of Modi's decision, my colleague was outside a, an ATM trying to see the kind of chaos this had unleashed. and over the next few days we stayed with the story we reported on as i said on how it was impacting farmers how it was impacting women because a lot of women in india you know over their lifetime they have they basically quietly saved money um which they have put away for their children they've hidden it from their husbands who are going to spend it on alcohol they, these are hard won savings that overnight became worthless So we interviewed various people over and we also we went out and we spoke to economists we published columns from some of the most respected economists and everyone was baffled but this was work that has fallen on the small independent newsrooms in the country because the large media organizations have abdicated their responsibility and have become a mouthpiece of the government Despite taking on this responsibility Sharma said she's uncertain about her company's future To be honest, I don't think about it. I you know, as long as we're we're around, we're going to do what we're doing. And uh, as I said, it's small independent newsrooms like ours who often had to, you know, do all the heavy lifting. I'm glad that there are some newspapers, you know, legacy media in India. They've broken important stories. The fact that unemployment touched a four-decade high in India after this disastrous demonetization decision was broken by one of our leading business newspapers uh there've been important stories that legacy media has done uh but you know on the day to day the kind of questioning that needs to happen of the government is something that legacy media is still very cautious around and in that sense um you know independent media has had to pay a price for it so we've seen that media organizations that are considered critical of the government that are not just going out there and and amplifying the government narrative you're listening to global journalist today we've been hearing from two enterprising female journalists who helped found startups in their home countries only to face harassment from the government maria ressa founder of rappler in the philippines and supriya sharma of scroll in india tell remarkably similar stories about trolling and its consequences. Ressa calls it patriotic trolling, online criticism meant to silence government critics, and she said it's not limited to the Philippines. Online state-sponsored hate that's meant to stifle to silence, stifle dissent, stifle uh, and target uh, perceived critics. Uh, patriotic trolling was coined by Camille Francois. She's now director of research, or she's like the head uh, of Graphica, which is one of the groups that uh, was given the data from the Senate hearings, and they went through the Russian propaganda, the Russian disinformation networks. This is linked to global geopolitical power because power 
needs to have companies that will carry these out, right? In the United States, you have Trump running for president and you have SCL and Cambridge Analytica set up by Steve Bannon, backed by, funded by Robert and Rebecca Mercer, right? SCL and Cambridge Analytica worked in the Philippines during the election of Duterte. And the data scientists, their main research, the head of research, just said that the Philippines was the petri dish. The tactics that they tried and tested and proved worked well. When they did that, they ported them, his word, ported them to the West. So we are the testing ground. If it works in the Philippines, you get, you get it next. Sharma agreed that trolling is an increasingly common problem for journalists. She said she's even had to mute her Twitter notifications. We experience it all the time. I mean, I just, when I post a, a story that we've just published, which, you know, I sort of know it's not going to go down with the base of the ruling party, and I go and put it up on Twitter, I just go and mute the tweet because I know it's just, I'm just going to get a lot of abuse. And so, I've, you know, we all find our ways of doing our work without paying attention to the trolls. Um, but prominent activists and journalists in India have been subjected to so much slander and abuse online. It's completely unbelievable. And women journalists in particular face such a lot of sexist abuse. It's pure misogyny. It's, it's vile. And the worst thing is that some of the people on social media who are who are attacking journalists using abusive language are followed by the Prime Minister. They proudly display in their Twitter bio, thank you, sir, for following me or whatever message. And the fact that, that the Prime Minister of India and the ministers in his cabinet are following abusive trolls who go on attacking journalists clearly gives the story away. We have a minister in the Modi government. This is this is before the 2014 election when um, you know, Modi and his and uh, and his uh, party men were yet to be swept to power. In the run-up to that election, uh, this minister coined the term prostitutes, and I hear that term has traveled widely in the world. It's now being used in Philippines and other places, but it originated in India. Sharma agrees with Rasa that this war on free speech is a threat to democracy everywhere. And this is happening at a time when. Across the world, democracy is facing challenges. Even in older, more sort of established democracies, we're seeing completely unprecedented changes. Despite that, I, I remind myself that journalism is the first draft of history. If nothing else, we need to leave a record of our times. We need to stay in this battle. And that's a wrap for this edition of Global Journalist, a production of the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the Missouri School of Journalism and KBIA, Mid-Missouri Public Radio. I'm Kathy Kiley, the Lee Hills Chair in Free Press Studies. I underwrite this program. Many thanks to today's subjects, Maria Ressa and Supriya Sharma, to our director, Travis McMillan, and to this week's assistant producers, Mina Tian, Renee Whistle, and Kyle McCubbin. I'd also like to give a big tip of the hat to Jason McClure. For more than five years, he has been a mentor to all our global journalists and our program's anchor. Now Jason is moving on, and we're taking a hiatus from our weekly broadcasts 
to reboot Global Journalist. Check out our website, globaljournalist.org, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to see the new content we'll be developing this spring. Thanks for listening. We've got one globe, and journalists are the ones who tell the stories that make it better.